Amen. Amen. Man, what a morning already. And we're just now getting to the meat and potatoes. Oh. If you'll remain standing with me and reach for your Bibles for this morning's scripture reading, we'll be in the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. If you're in need of a Bible, please feel free to use a pew Bible. should be one located in front of you. You can find today's scripture reading on page 1054. John, chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 35, reading through the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them falling and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, we come, Lord, and we just thank you for today. Lord, what a day it has been already through worshiping you and singing and praising, reading of your word and through baptism, Lord. Father, just turn our hearts to you, Lord, during this time. Be with Jordan as he brings your word. Lord, we love you, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Good morning, Life Bridge. As we say in the Philippines, magandang umaga. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you today. Uh, you know, uh, as missionaries in the Philippines, um, it's been three and a half years since we've been back in the U.S., and I'm so glad that uh, during the six-month furlough, our first church we get to um, worship with and speak to and celebrate with is, is LifeBridge. Because um, you're more than just a supporter. You're, this is home when we come here. Um, if, if you're not uh, familiar with us, if you're new, my wife grew up here in the church. We've spent so much time around um, LifeBridge, and, and you've been uh, such a pivotal partner in our ministry in the Philippines. So we're so happy to get to um, be here with you today after all this time. And uh, it, it's been an interesting few years. I'm not going to dwell on that, but uh, we'd probably all rather forget the past few years. But what a joy it is we get to celebrate a new year. And I asked a question for our sermon title today, Who Are You Seeking? Because it's a good question for us to be reminded and refreshed in as we begin the new year. This passage we're looking at today um, came special to me this past year. Um, at our church in the Philippines, uh, we are part of a church called Life House. I've worked hard to not greet you the wrong way, like I'm custom, but Life House Church there. And uh, I get to serve alongside four Filipino um, brothers in Christ uh, as elders, and we take turns preaching. And this past year, we've been preaching through the Gospel of John. Very slowly, we only made it through six chapters. But uh, it's been a joy to take this deep dive into John's gospel and to just see how rich, how beautiful it is, what John gives us here. And in this passage in particular, um, it's just really special because it reminds us 
how radical it is to encounter Jesus when he is what we're seeking, when he is the desire of our heart. When we meet Jesus, it changes us. We celebrate that just a bit ago with baptism. What a beautiful picture of what we're going to look at today. The, this is the very first encounter these men had um, who'd go on to be disciples of Christ. They would leave their jobs and walk beside Christ for three years. They'd go on to be apostles of the church, helping to establish the gospel message all across the Mediterranean. And they would end up giving their lives as martyrs because their passion, their love, their faithfulness, they grew from this encounter that we're reading about today. Most of us won't be called to leave our jobs or to give our lives, but I hope that you would be reminded in the new year to have the same kind of passion for Christ that we read about. So we're going to be looking at these radical encounters with Jesus. Um, four, I've kind of broken it down into four kind of observations and applications we can take from the text as we go through these radical encounters. But before we get there, I think it's good for us to just have a little bit of an introduction into John's gospel and lay some groundwork. Um, John here is, is John the disciple, John the beloved, one of the 12 who um, followed Jesus that we know well. He wrote First and Second, Third John and Revelation. And, uh, and so I established that because at the beginning we have a different John of this passage, John the Baptist, separate guy, um, the forerunner to Christ, testifying to Christ, who Christ is. Um, but John writes this gospel, and it's really beautiful because he weaves in patterns and details and information that keeps hammering in his priority and his purpose for us to understand who Jesus is. He has three priorities for us in this passage to see, and, and he, he, he draws out of the text for us. And it's good to be reminded, John's writing probably decades after the other gospels have been written. He's writing much longer after... Um, the other Gospels, most of Paul's epistles have been written. He's, he's writing afterwards, and he wants to fill us in on details. He wants us to understand better um, who Jesus is and, and to enhance what has come before. And so, first of all, his first priority in this passage is to establish the identity of Jesus. And really, the entire Gospel is about establishing the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. God incarnate. In fact, he begins his gospel that way. You know, Matthew, Luke begin with the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. But John takes it back to Genesis. He says, in the beginning, just like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word, was Jesus. He is God. He's established that from the very first verse, and that's his message all the way through till the end of the gospel. In fact, he often will give a passage, and at the end of the passage, explain why he shares it. Well, at the end of the very gospel, he explains why he wrote the entire gospel. In John chapter 20, um, verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what John wants for us, is to believe in Jesus and have life in his name. And so he gives us this story to help establish the identity of Jesus. In fact, just in this passage of loan, he uses about seven or eight different descriptors for who Jesus is. He calls him the Lamb of God, or John the Baptist declares that. He's declared to be rabbi or teacher, Messiah or Christ. Later, he's called him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He's identified in his humanity. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And then finally, at the end of this passage, he's declared to be the son of God, the king of Israel. And he, Jesus even self-identifies himself as the son of man, referencing Old Testament prophecy. This passage is rich with trying to help us understand who Jesus is. Which brings us to our second priority we see in this passage. John laid the groundwork, he introduced John the Baptist to introduce the forerunner to Christ. And right before this passage, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. But now John the Evangelist, our author here, wants to shift the focus from John the Baptist to Jesus, as was the goal all along. 
He's established these divine attributes of who Jesus is and how John the Baptist testified to him. But at the very beginning, we see John the Baptist point his own disciples to Jesus. He says, no, don't follow me anymore. Jesus is here. Go follow him. Behold the Lamb of God. That's who I've been telling you about. That's who you're waiting for. That's who you need to be with. In his humility, John the Baptist is not looking for to make a name for himself. He's not looking to lift himself up. Instead, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And so, very briefly, we see that John, our author, is shifting that focus. But the primary area that we're going to see today is he wants to demonstrate the life-altering impact of knowing Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be seeing in our passages, is how meeting Jesus changes our life radically. And although we're seeing the beginning of their journey with Jesus, and it's a, it's a transformation that takes place all throughout our lives, whether you're a new Christian and a Christian for a few months, or whether you've been in this church for decades, we need to have radical encounters with Jesus. We need to constantly be refreshed and renewed by the power of the gospel and being in awe of who he is. And so um, I pray that you be impacted by looking at this today. So we're going to look at four examples of the life-altering impact of faith. Four examples here that we can see. Four examples that teach us how we should be living our life as Christ followers. And so at the beginning of this passage, we see first see these two disciples. They're unnamed at the beginning. They're following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. And what happens, it says in verse um, 37, it says, The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. He was walking on the road. John the Baptist points at us and says, There he is, the Lamb of God. There's, there's the one I've been telling you about. And so they just start to follow him. And, and so they're just following him down the road. And finally, Jesus turns to them in verse 38 and says, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Seems like an interesting exchange, an interesting response to his question. He asked, what are you seeking? In fact, that phrase is kind of repeated through John's gospel. Um, he'll say, who are you seeking when the guards come to arrest him? And then he asked Mary Magdalene in the garden, who, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? John weaves these patterns and these phrases repeatedly. We asked them, what are you seeking? Why are you following me? As if he didn't know. He's God incarnate. He's omniscient. He, but he, he wants to elicit a response from them. He wants them to share. And, and they say, ask him, Rabbi, where are you staying? It seems like an odd request, right? Are they just interested in the architecture of his house? Are they, you know, why, are they, why are they asking that? But it, it's late in the day. It's almost dinner time. And, and basically what they're saying is, where are you going? Because we want to be with you. We want to follow you. We want to stay with you. We want to learn from you. He says to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. It was about 4 p.m. in the day. Jesus wanted them to be confronted with the question of what is it you really want? What are you seeking? Who are you seeking? It's a question we should ask ourselves because in the busyness of life and the burdens of daily responsibilities, it's easy to lose sight of what is it we should be seeking in our lives. There's so many distractions. We're bombarded by 24-hour news and commercials and and internet, and all these things. And I'm not saying those are all bad, but there's just so many things vying for our attention. It's good for us to constantly ask ourselves, what is it I'm seeking? Who am I seeking? Jesus wanted to confront them with that and lead them to respond. They want to spend time with him. Daily, we need to spend time with Jesus to seek after him. And might ask ourselves, what motivates me? What gets me excited? Am I eager to spend time with my Savior? Or is he an afterthought? You know what? The disciples, even after three years of living every day with Jesus, walking with him, spending all of that time with him, 
when they heard that he was going to be going away, they were sad. They could not get enough of being with Jesus. I think that's why in John's gospel, he calls the Holy Spirit that he's going to send, the comforter. They need to be comforted in the absence of Jesus' presence. Who are we seeking? Do we yearn to be with Jesus like these two men did? That's a convicting question for all of us, myself included. You know, being a pastor and a Bible college professor and a missionary does not make this question an automatic yes for me. It doesn't make it any easier than it does for any of you. We're all tempted to take our eye off of Jesus and to desire other things more than him. What Jesus wants is us to, to crave, as I said, intimacy with him, to savor intimacy with Christ. These men probably stayed up late into the hours of the night listening to Jesus teach, listening to him expound upon God's word, just hearing him share. They savored that time, that intimacy with him, and over the next three years, walking with him. Do, it may seem like it was easier for them to savor intimacy with Christ because they got to be with him in person. But we're not getting the second-rate experience of Jesus in intimacy with him. Now, in fact, what you see is all throughout those three years, these men were imperfect. They kept stumbling. They kept misunderstanding. They kept making mistakes. But what a powerful transformation takes place when Jesus leaves and he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell upon them. We're not getting a second-rate experience of Christ and his intimacy. In fact, through the Holy Spirit in us, we get to both savor a very unique and special intimacy with Christ because the Spirit mediates for us and and opens our heart to God's word. And we also get to savor just the anticipation of one day being in Christ's presence. These disciples loved Christ, but they even more powerfully demonstrated their intimacy with him in faithfully following him for the rest of their lives. And that's what God desires for us and what he, he calls us to do to understand this more deeply and to live it out more faithfully through the Spirit illuminating our our eyes to God's Word, to helping us sanctify and and grow in Christ-likeness. We get to savor a special intimacy with Christ. But we see that it begins with savoring that intimacy. These two disciples wanted to be with Jesus. They started to follow him and spend time with him. And they would keep spending time with him. Of course, all of that's possible because when we radically encounter Jesus, it alters our lives in ways unimaginable. It changes our identity and purpose. And that brings us to our second encounter we see here. Encountering Jesus gives us a new identity and purpose. First, we need to savor intimacy with Christ. Then we need to relish in the fact that we get a new identity and purpose in Jesus. We're not the same as who we were before. And we see that with Simon Peter. It says, one of these two men who heard John speak, you know, they were nameless before, but it says, now one of these two men followed Jesus, who followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. We get a name to that person. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew's first instinct, and we'll get to this side of it in in the next encounter as well. His first instinct is to bring his brother Peter to meet Jesus. And what we see with Peter is then he gets a new identity and a new purpose. He gets a new name, even, to signify this. You know, Andrew, I love that John even introduces Andrew like this right at the beginning of the gospel, because the other Gospels really don't give us a lot about anybody besides Peter, James, and John. You know, you get the big three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're always talking about them, especially Peter. And then you get Judas, of course, which, you know, is a negative. 
But you, those are basically the four disciples who get focused on in, in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, Mark, and Luke. But John, what I love what he does here is, all throughout his Gospel, he shifts the focus and he begins to pull some focus on these other nameless, not nameless disciples, but the ones who don't get attention. And I love that because it's just a reminder that Like we, it's a reminder that in, in a day and age when we think we need celebrity and attention and likes and focus, there's something to be said for just quiet faithfulness without the spotlight. Just living our lives faithfully without attention. Nobody's writing news stories about it. Nobody's celebrating it. But God craves just quiet faithfulness. And so I love that John does this. You know, all throughout the gospel, he doesn't focus on himself. You know, he never names himself. He says, he'll say the one Christ loved. He refuses to name his name. But he pulls focus to these other guys, like Andrew. And so Andrew brings his brother, Simon. And it's an interesting encounter, right? You meet somebody for the first time, he says, It'd be like me going up at meeting Chris for the first time. Oh, your name's Chris? I'm going to call you Steve. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a weird, it, you know, it's a, it's a shocking encounter, right? Our, our names are, are so much a part of who we are. But in the, and in the Bible more so, I mean, for the Jews, your name was a part of very much a descriptor of your identity and who you are. So for Jesus to give them a new name is to say, I'm changing you. You're going to be a new person. In fact, he calls him Cephas or Peter there. Again, John's writing after these other, other Gospels, and he, he clarifies because Paul, in his, his writings, he always refers to Peter's Aramaic name, Cephas. And so he, he gives us the Aramaic, he gives us the Greek for clarification's sake. He says, this is Cephas, Peter. He gives him this new name. In the Bible, it's all about our names are our identity, and God's constantly changing people's names to signify the transformation that's taking place in their lives, whether it's Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. There's these changes that come when God encounters you. It transforms your identity, your purpose. He calls him Cephas or or Peter, a rock. But he's not saying you yourself are some great grand rock He's he's saying, I'm going to use you. I'm going to do it in you. I'm going to accomplish my purpose through you, and in fact, in spite of you at times, right? When we encounter Jesus, he gives us a new identity, a new purpose. And we may think we're inadequate for the job. We may think we're failures, that we, we can't accomplish and live up to Christ's standard, but he wants to accomplish in us his purpose. He wants to do something powerful and beautiful in our lives to transform us radically and use us for his glory. So we see this here, him giving Peter this new identity and purpose. We need that as well. Um, You know, it may seem strange too. Interesting here that this is Peter's first encounter. I think John gives us this to help us understand better what happens in the other Gospels, right? We're used to Jesus, you know, in the other Gospels, it describes Peter's calling to Jesus when Jesus is by the the Sea of Galilee, and he's been fishing, and he calls him and Andrew and James and John to leave their nets and follow him. But John shows us he had actually met Jesus prior to that. It kind of gives us a context for why Peter and the others were ready to lay down their nets and leave. In fact, I think it begs the question, why were they fishing if they'd already met Jesus? Why did they go back to fishing then after this? Were they failing to follow Jesus in doing so? I think they were being absolutely obedient to this new identity and purpose that Jesus had given them in our passage here. They went back to their lives to be a testimony to who Jesus is. Jesus hadn't called them to full-time ministry yet, but he had changed their lives. He had impacted them powerfully. 
they had met the Messiah. They'd seen him and believed in him. And now they're back in their lives, living their job, living amongst their family and neighbors, but now with a newfound faith in who Jesus is. But it, it makes it more, all the more reason why they'd be so quick to lay down those nets when Jesus comes along and says, no, I, d- I don't want you to just fish. I want you to be fishers of men. I want you to come with me. I want you to be with me full time. In fact, I think it's their very obedience to this new identity in their old setting that made them prime candidates to be called to walk with Jesus permanently. The call, you know, for ministry, full-time ministry, pastoral ministry, is not something that is on a different level necessarily from the standard call to Christianity in the sense that what Paul describes in 1 Timothy, that call to ministry, is something that should be true of all of us, right? We should all be faithful to God's word. We should all be understanding it and learning it. We should all be hospitable and, and exercising self-control and the fruits of the Spirit. And then God can lift up and raise up those who will serve him full time. But what they were was they were faithful to God's calling. They were being transformed by him. And then God raised them up to ministry. And so we see that here. We have received a new identity in Jesus. We have received a new name. We're children of God. We have a new identity. We're redeemed. We have a new purpose to be an obedient and faithful servant to God, testifying of the truth we've received. And that's the next purpose, what I want us to see, this next encounter with, with who Jesus is. With Philip and Andrew, I want to focus on these two, Philip and Andrew, and see the contagious joy of faith that we should have when we meet Jesus. We've already seen that Andrew's first instinct was to go find his brother, Peter, and bring him. And then in the following passage, we see another man called, and he exercises that same instinct to go find someone else. In verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from beside the city of Andrew and Peter. He's likely friends with Peter and Andrew and James and John, grew up there. We get to see Philip now, another disciple who kind of gets overlooked in the other Gospels. And, and see, In fact, what I love is Philip and Andrew, they keep propping up throughout John's Gospel. In fact, one of the, you know, our, one of the beloved stories, the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle we're so familiar with. In the other Gospels, it just describes that Jesus said to the disciples, hey, feed this crowd, this, this multitude. I want you to feed them. And they, they responded with skepticism. How can we possibly do that? We don't have nearly enough money to go out and buy bread for what was, was 5,000 men, probably up to 10,000 people, women and children included. We can't do that. And then it says someone brings some bread and and fish to Jesus. But what John does when he gets that story, he says, Jesus turned to Philip and said, Philip, provide bread for these people. He makes it personal. He shows there's a personal dynamic going on in this story. And and then we see that response was Philip's. And probably the others were thinking it, but it's Philip who said, "You you know, months of wages would not be enough to provide food for all these people. But then it's Andrew who comes and brings the bread and the fish. He brings the young boy with the bread and fish. So John makes it more personal, shine the spotlight on these two. In fact, it seems like they're always bringing people to Jesus. In John chapter 12, we read about um, another encounter unique to John's gospel. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some God-fearing Gentiles. They weren't Jewish people, but they believed in God. And, and they were obedient to his law and were coming up to worship. And so these Greeks come. And so these came to Philip, who was from beside in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it says in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Like, so we see this kind of repeated um, encounter that, Philip and Andrew keep bringing people to Jesus. That's their instinct. They have met Jesus. They've been transformed by his his impact on their lives. And we keep seeing them bringing others to Jesus. Their joy in Jesus is contagious. They want other people to know Jesus and meet him. 
And so it should be no surprise then that we see here, Philip's first instinct, like Andrew's, was to go find a friend. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He says, you know, Philip doesn't have all the details, right? He's just met Jesus. His theology is not complete. He doesn't know about the incarnation. He says, hey, we found this, the Messiah. It's just Jesus, the son of Joseph. He doesn't, he doesn't understand, okay, there's, there's more to it than that. But what he knows is this is whom the scriptures point to, and you need to meet him too, Nathaniel. He goes to his friend and says, I want you to know. I want you to know, know Jesus. We can be afraid to share about Jesus because we think we don't know everything. We don't know enough. I'm not well-versed enough in my Bible. I can't answer every question. Philip didn't have all the answers yet. He didn't have a full grasp, but he knew his friend needed to know Jesus. There was contagious joy in his life, and so he brings Nathaniel to Jesus to meet him. Um, yeah. And I love this. It's an interesting response from Nathaniel, right? There's some question, actually, to, as to who is Nathaniel. Because in the list of disciples in the other Gospels, there's no Nathaniel mentioned. Um, it says, you know, in, in Mark chapter 3, it lists out the disciples. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas. He's not listed there, so there's been some question. But most scholars believe that we're talking about one of the 12 here, Nathaniel. He's most likely Bartholomew, listed next to Philip there, which would make sense, that association. Because Bartholomew is not a proper name. Um, it, is, it means son of Tolmai. Um, sometimes Simon, Peter, is called Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. And so most scholars believe we're talking about the same guy. In fact, Nathaniel, it would make sense for him to be one to 12 and closely t- tied to all of them because, again, Nathaniel shows up at the end of John's Gospel. In John chapter 21, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee and two others were together after the resurrection. And Simon said, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And so, again, John's shining the spotlight on these guys. He's kind of weaving in that they're all connected. So Nathaniel's probably this Bartholomew, one of the 12. So Philip says to him, come, we found Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom Moses, the law, and the prophets wrote. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a curious response, right? It sounds almost offensive. You know, I probably have some split affiliations uh, sports-wise here, maybe some Missouri fans, some KU fans. It's like saying, can anything good come out of Lawrence if you're a Missouri fan or vice versa? Can anything good come out of Columbia? It sounds like he's, he's a little... <laughs> it sounds a little skeptical. It sounds a little offensive. But again, John's weaving in a pattern here for us. There, there was some confusion about Jesus because... The Old Testament said the Messiah would come from the line of David, from Bethlehem. So it's a legitimate question. Nathaniel's just asking an honest question. In fact, other this question's repeated elsewhere in John's Gospel. In chapter 7, there's a debate among the crowd. Some people said, this is the Christ. In chapter 7, verse 41, some said, but is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And later the Pharisees and Jewish leaders debating. And and they said, and when one spoke up and said, maybe that he really is the Messiah, they they responded and scoffed at him. In verse 52, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nathaniel had a legitimate question. But I love Philip's response. Again, he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't answer Nathaniel's question. He doesn't have a, a reason. What does he say? He just says, come and see. Just come and meet Jesus. Let him, let him transform your life. We don't have to have all the answers when it comes to sharing Christ. What we need 
we need to have, a, I guess, a basic understanding of the gospel. But we also need to have a, a, a joy that's contagious, a desire to share our hope we have received in Christ with others and a desire to bring them to Jesus. Just say, come and see. Just come and see. We need to remember we can't radically alter our friends' lives. We can't fix their problems. We can't give them a new identity and purpose. We just need to remember that it's Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who transforms. They may respond, they may not. Paul says that Jesus is an aroma. In, uh, in Corinthians, he says, Jesus is an aroma, and to those who are rejecting him, it's a foul stench, it's offensive. But to those whom the Spirit is drawing to faith, Jesus is a sweet, sweet aroma of life. Don't have to be afraid of how people respond. We just need to say, come and see, and let the Spirit be drawing those to faith that, that he's drawing. We need to bring people and just say, come and see. Which brings me to my final example here. We have in Nathaniel, I think, a picture that we all need to model. And it's a picture of submissive adoration. Submissive adoration to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? It's a strange statement from Christ. It's different than his other encounters. He didn't, he didn't say anything similar to the two disciples on the road. Like Each of these encounters is a little different. It's fascinating. But with Nathanael, he, he makes this bold statement, and Nathanael's confused by it. He's like, I've never met you. What are you saying? Nathaniel, he says, is a true Israelite. And I can't help but hear echoes from Paul in Romans. And I think this is what Christ is communicating. Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul points us to this idea that of a true Israelite. God created a physical nation, a people, but there was a physical Israel in the Old Testament and a spiritual Israel. There were those who were born of, as Jews, and there were those who actually spiritually were transformed by God, who were obedient to his word, who sought after him and lived according to the law. There's a physical people and there's a spiritual people. And he says here, Nathaniel, you're a true Israelite. You're someone who truly loves God. Jehovah, who, who loves him and is following after him, who's repented. In fact, again, it reminds me in Romans chapter 2, it says in chapter 2, verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. He's saying, Nathaniel, you have been circumcised of the heart. I can see the Spirit has worked in your heart and is drawing you. In fact, Christ, I think, is also making a statement because he's quoting the Old Testament in, in both um, the Psalms and the Minor Prophets in this statement. Psalm chapter 32, verse 1, this statement of in whom there's no deceit props up. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Saying, Nathaniel, can see that you're following after God, that you're, you know, in the Old Testament sense, you're, you're a believer. You're following God. You're, you're one of these people who's prepared for me. And it talks about in Zephaniah chapter 3, I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no justice, injustice, and speak no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And Zephaniah, it's describing, it's predicting the future when amidst the brokenness of Israel and their rebellion against God, God would keep a remnant of faithful followers that he would draw in and use to and begin enacting his promises with. And so Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, not only do you 
picture and image these things of the Old Testament, but now I'm here to fulfill this. I'm here to do this. You see, now is the time for these promises to be fulfilled, Nathaniel. You are among the remnant. I see your heart. I know who you are. And Nathaniel's response reveals the truth of this. He's just honest. He says there's no deceit. He doesn't try to curry favor. He doesn't try to flatter. He just asks an honest question. How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Again, odd statements, right? This, this passage is full of strange encounters, but radical encounters. Jesus makes this statement, I saw you. When you are under the fig tree, I saw you. What does that mean? What is he referencing? It doesn't tell us. And I think that's kind of the point. Whatever Christ is stating there and referencing, it's something that only Nathaniel knew. It was something maybe he hadn't told anybody else, this experience that he had had. But whatever it was, is meaningful to him. In fact, it's so meaningful. And he realized only God could know that. He responds with this powerful testimony, this powerful statement. What does he say? You are the Son of God. That's a bigger statement than any of the others have said so far. He says, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I love that. Both, I love that John gives us this kind of parallel image. He bookends the gospel with these declarations. Nathaniel here, you are the Son of God. And at the end of the gospel, after the resurrection, Thomas, when he sees Christ resurrected, what does he say? My Lord and my God. John's giving us these bookends here to make it clear who Jesus is. He says, you are the king of Israel. And I think there's meaning to that. He said, if you were saying, I am a true Israelite, then you are my king. You are my king and my Lord. And he submits himself in adoration to who Jesus is. It's a profound statement he makes. That he comes to this realization through this, this unique encounter with Jesus. It's the same kind of submissive adoration we need to have before Christ. To declare, you are my king. You are my Lord. And Jesus answers him. I love this. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He says, Daniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And I think he, I, I love that he says, you, you believe because of that. There's so much greater things to, that will occur. These miracles you'll get to see. And ultimately, Christ resurrected from the dead. He says, there's so much more in store. This is just the beginning. Just like when we first encounter Christ, it's just the beginning. There are greater things to experience and see in our lives. He has so much more in store for us when we submit ourselves in adoration to him as Lord and King and walk faithfully with him. I want to conclude then about how can we experience the life-altering impact of faith. I don't want to spend too much time with the final verses, but it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is how Jesus concludes this, this passage. He makes, again, another curious statement. But again, it's rich with meaning. He's referencing the Old Testament and the encounter Jacob had when he, he dreamed. He saw a vision of a ladder going up to heaven and angels descending and ascending. And, what Jesus, and Jesus actually shifts his statement here. Before, prior to this, when he said, you'll see greater things than this, it's the singular you. He's saying, Thomas, you'll see greater things. But the you here is a plural. He's saying, you all. You who follow me, you will see this happen. You'll see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending. He doesn't make reference to the ladder that it is, is in Jacob's vision, Genesis 28, because he is the ladder. He is, because Jacob, when he saw that dream, what he, his response to seeing this vision was to say, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. In Genesis 28, 17. What Christ is declaring is what Jacob saw in a vision now is reality. I am here. I am the gate of heaven. Through me, mankind can now come before God. 
mankind can now come before their creator, their holy creator, and have a relationship with him, an intimate relationship with the God of all heaven. He's saying this is being fulfilled. He, he gives us this picture. Just like he'll say later in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is declaring something new is happening. I have come so that you may know God. You may be restored and reconciled to him. And that's how we can experience the life-altering impact of faith is through Christ alone, through a relationship with him. Jesus came into this world to be the gate of heaven for the disciples and for us. He came to bring radically life-altering transformation through a personal relationship with him. So we must answer for ourselves the question of Jesus. Who are you seeking? What are you seeking? Is it fulfillment in Christ alone? Or is it in relationships, job, money, possessions? Where do we turn for our transformation? Or do we want to be transformed? Are we content to say the same? In the same pattern, the same rut? Are we comfortable with how we are? Or do we desire spiritual change? As we look at this passage, we see meeting Jesus should radically alter our lives. It should make all the difference in who we are. And not just from the moment of our, not just in one moment at salvation. It's a day-by-day transformation that he wants to accomplish in our lives. So I want to exhort us to savor your time with Christ. Savor your time with him. Value that. Desire intimacy with Jesus. Embrace your new identity and purpose. Jesus wants to change you. He wants to give you a new life, a new meaning. Share the enthusiastic, contagious joy of faith. Don't keep it to ourselves. We need to share it, just like Philip and Andrew did. We need to submit ourselves to the Lord in adoration. When we do these things, we demonstrate that we have been radically altered by Jesus, that we are truly seeking after him with our whole hearts and setting aside the idols of this world. I pray that in this new year, again, whether you followed Christ for a few months, a few years, or a few decades now, that you would be refreshed and reinvigorated in your commitment to Jesus in these ways. Be transformed day by day through your experience of the gospel, both personally and in community as a church bonded together in love as brothers and sisters for our common cause, the glory of our Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new year you've blessed us with. We thank you for your grace that you've shown us through Jesus Christ and through the testimony that was recorded here for us to read by John the inspiration of your spirit, Lord. I'm thankful that he reveals just the life-altering impact of knowing you, Lord, of how it changes us, how it transforms our lives, Lord. And as we, as we enter into this new year, as we maybe go through a time of evaluation, uh, examining our hearts and our lives, making goals and resolutions, I pray that we would ask ourselves the question, who is it I'm seeking? What is it I'm seeking? Is it you? I pray that would be the desire of our heart to to wholeheartedly seek after you in all areas of our life, Lord. And I pray if there's someone here today who who does not know you, Lord, who has not experienced the radical life-altering impact of knowing Christ, I pray that your spirit be working their hearts, drawing them. I pray today could be the day of salvation for them, that they would finally submit themselves to you, Lord, as as Savior, as Lord, and come to know just this intimacy with you and the power you, you bring when you give us a new identity and a new purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jordan. Appreciate that so, so much. What uh, encouragement to hear from the Word of God from John here. Who are you seeking? And of course, what a great reminder that there is no one, no one greater than Jesus Christ that we can seek and give our lives to. And when you encounter Jesus Christ in a life-altering way of faith, man, you want to 
follow him. That is the first result is we commit our life to follow him in following Jesus Christ. But we also are motivated to not only commit our life to following Christ, but to commit to his body. That is the local church to one another here this morning. So we just don't commit to following Christ, but we commit to the body of Christ as well. And that is what we call church membership. And I'm just so excited that we can uh, present two uh, new families for membership here at LifeBridge this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and invite TJ and Paige to come on up here to the front, as well as Kara and Dustin. If you guys would stand right up here. These guys have, uh, have a desire to join our church family, make that commitment, and they have gone through our membership class. They fulfill the requirements of membership, which first and foremost is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, knowing him as their Lord and Savior, and then following him in baptism. And you may remember just last month we baptized uh, Paige, and, uh, and then this morning obviously baptizing T.J., I mean, not TJ, but Dustin and Kara. And, uh, and so Dustin and Kara Hill, they have three, three kids of their own that are joining with them. And so it's their family. We, they have Bobby, who's their oldest son, and Charlie, their middle one, and then Ellie, who is the youngest child. And so uh, we're excited. Are you excited to welcome them into our church family? Say amen. And... Uh, now, before we, uh, before we dismiss here, I want to do something, lead us to do something we haven't done before, but I want us to do it. So I want to invite you to join me in this, because when we join and, and make a commitment to our church family, we're really doing this together. We're, we're committing to them as new members. They are committing themselves to us as a church body here. And so we have a church covenant, and there are six specific things that we are coveting ourselves to do. So I want to invite you to stand, if you will. And invite TJ and uh, Dustin and Kara, if you guys turn around and just look up at the screen here. And I want us to uh, say this aloud together. This is our commitment as a reminder for those of us who are already members. It's a commitment that these new families are making. And so will you follow along with me that I will protect the unity of my church. I will share the responsibility of my church. I will serve the ministry of my church. I will support the testimony of my church, I will safeguard the purity of my church, and I will submit to the authority of my church. All right, we're going to be dismissed. These two families will be up here. If you haven't introduced yourself, come and introduce yourself. Give them a hug. Welcome them into our family here at LifeBridge. And, of course, if you don't know, uh, Jordan and Nikki, do the same as well. Introduce yourself. I know many of you already know them. And so give them a hug and welcome them here at LifeBridge. You are dismissed.